there, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organisation dedicated to creating a flourishing world. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core capabilities that I believe and decades of research supports are essential in creating a flourishing life. So join me as I talk to experts from around the globe about the six M's, mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. They'll share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. So let's get started. Today, I'm speaking with Elizabeth King. Liz is a leadership development advisor, a C-suite coach, and an acknowledged author and scholar focusing on leadership in uncertain contexts. Liz is also currently a lecturer in the coaching psychology unit at the University of Sydney. Her 30-year career has led to her focus on designing and implementing high-impact, enduring, client-tailored approaches to leadership development that are evidence-based and mindfulness-based. Her academic profile includes a science degree, an MBA, a Master's of Coaching, and a PhD titled Leadership in Uncertainty, The Mindfulness Solution. Liz also loves to rap with her son on the way to and from school. So good morning, Liz. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Susie. I'm really well and super excited about talking to you. been watching your work for years, so I'm thrilled. Oh, fantastic. And of course, you're here to talk about mindfulness. And you've also just co-authored a chapter for our new Springer book uh, that's coming out on positive psychology coaching in the workplace. And I found it extremely interesting because it broadened my perspective of mindfulness, Liz. And uh, so I'm really keen to learn from someone who has been in this field, has done a PhD on the topic. Um, So really keen to hear more from you today. Thank you, Susie. So, as you know, there are different conceptualizations of mindfulness, and uh, I know I certainly don't count myself as an expert as as such. I, I know the research relatively well. I've been practicing, and I guess the key mm-hmm. word there is practice, Liz, for a long time. I'm certainly not an expert by any means. Mm-hmm. But what does mindfulness mean to you? Oh, to me, my goodness. Mindfulness to me means a way of life, but that's just to me personally. In a general sense, the term is often meaningless because it means such different things to different people. Many experts actually refuse to define it. Mm. And and this is because this word does mean different things to different people. And it's a word like freedom in many ways, like any other value. You know, the clarity of the word is found in the individual's definition of the term, which is why my work was about trying to understand the many ways people define and use the term. So like even the founder of the modern mindfulness revolution, many people consider that to be John Kabat-Zinn because he brought yes. mindfulness back from really Vietnam and created uh, this whole scientific study of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't give one definitive definition. People tend to describe different angles depending on the context, which is what my work was about. If we're thinking about what it means scientifically in a testable way, then we're really talking about a form of mindfulness that I would describe as individual psychological mindfulness. And and that's the sort of mindfulness that people like John Kabat-Zinn and 
the founders of the mindfulness sort of move, current mindfulness movement really are discussing. Yeah, I think that's a great description or definition, individual psychological mindedness, because I know in, in reading uh, your chapter again that you spoke about this concept of systemic awareness. And I know just reflecting on my own learnings in this space, when I first uh, undertook a course, my uh, mindfulness practitioner who was a psychologist and had lived as a, as a Buddhist monk for many years, he differentiated what he called flashlight mindfulness and then floodlight. So sort of more mm. that focused attention versus more of a much broader attention. And I often think about in an individual coaching context, I'm much more flashlight, very focused on that individual. Mm -hmm. But then when I'm presenting a, a workshop or you know keynote, I'm trying to maintain a more floodlight, a much broader awareness. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. So I understand mindfulness to be inclusive of both those things. And, and one of the problems with the mindfulness literature is people often think it's only about flashlight mindfulness. Right. So in my own model, it's called the wheel of mindfulness. There's this internal rim which tries to describe the internal skills of mindfulness, making the distinction between attention, which is what I would call the flashlight mindfulness, so where you've got narrowed awareness focused on something, versus awareness, which is this broad awareness you're talking about, floodlight. But also to make it truly mindfulness, we have to add an attitude that is described variously by different scholars. But in my work, I describe it as acceptance because it's an attitude of accepting the present moment as it is now. So we know in John Kabat-Zinn's original definition, it was paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. It's this non-judgmental attitude that we need to capture. So later on, John's work started to describe it as awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the moment. So we're always trying to capture in our definitions the, this floodlight, flashlight, and attitude. Two things I, I really love your thoughts on because I've all, always personally struggled with this concept of non-judgmental because, mm. as you know, the brain, that's how it operates. It, it categorises and it makes judgments very quickly sometimes. So what's your response to, is it being aware of the judging mind potentially in that sense? Yeah, it, it is. So, yeah, of course, we actually, you know, when you really go into it, we can't be non-judgmental. What it means is really there's... um. Most of us have a response to experience naturally that is we perceive an experience as positive or negative. Yes. And this art of acceptance is about removing that perception. So to not necessarily perceive something as positive or negative just, just to accept it. And it's an incredibly empowering position in life. Mm, absolutely. And the other, I guess, uh, thoughts, and I know we had last year, we had the pleasure and privilege of having Professor Felicia Huppert, who I know you mm. know quite well as well, and mindfulness is a very keen interest of hers. And she has been moving much more towards, I guess, this attitude approach coming much more from a, a compassion approach combined with mindfulness. And is that what you're seeing or, or what you consider to be part of that attitudinal approach to mindfulness as well? I do, Susie, but this is where we begin to step into more towards the sort of concepts that we were discussing in the book chapter. Mm. So there's lots of different ways to cut this. There's no one way. But one really helpful 
response to what's going on in mindfulness is to make a distinction between first-generation and second-generation mindfulness. like that. Where in second-generation mindfulness are the sorts of interventions that are derived from Buddhism. And when we begin to go down that path, and I describe it as the outer ring in my own diagram, the wheel of mindfulness, we begin to take an understanding of the nature of reality that is drawn from Buddhist and other wisdom scholars, which is the acceptance that our experience in life is constantly changing. It's a little bit uncomfortable and this happens because everything's interdependent. Mm. In the approaches to mindfulness that are drawn from Buddhism, we add to these skills of awareness and attention and acceptance and understanding of life being experienced that way plus a set of mental strategies that include what are traditionally taught in wisdom areas or what you're currently teaching in positive psychology, which include compassion, equanimity, Mm. patience, all these sorts of mental skills, characteristics, different scholars call them different things, but this is where we get this whole attitude of compassion arising. Fantastic. I love that differentiation. And is there anything published or even of your own, Liz, um, that readers might be able to go to with this differentiation of first and second gen mindfulness? Yeah, well, I do distinguish it in a couple of my publications. One's called The Wheel of Mindfulness and the other one is called Leadership in Uncertainty, The Mindfulness Solution. There's also, if you look at the work, anything that Alan Wallace's has written yes and then the original term was coined by two authors called Shonen and Van Gordon and they've written a number of papers they've published on this idea of second generation mindfulness. Fantastic we'll put a link to those uh, studies um, on the Facebook page. There's also different types of measures and assessments when it comes to mindfulness as well. Mm, yes. Any thoughts or that might be helpful? I know not everybody on listening to the podcast will be interested in psychometric measures but yeah any yeah. quick thoughts on measures or assessments of mindfulness? There's many measures. Most of them pretty much all of them, are measuring psychological mindfulness and there's a big debate about whether they're measuring a trait or a state. And, they're, you know, they're okay. There's a number of good ones. But where we have trouble in the workplace is that there is not a lot of evidence about the relationship between mindfulness and a whole lot of hypothesised impacts in the workplace. Mm. So we need new research and more research on these flow-on effects of mindfulness, including the mental strategies that I've just referred to that we often think of as positive psychology. They're, in fact, second-generation mindfulness interventions as well. So where we have trouble in the research of mindfulness is a disconnect between what we're measuring and it's like what label. Is the label on the bottle match the contents? And in the most of the research of mindfulness outside of psychological individual research, it doesn't. So um, that's going to be some really interesting research emerging, Liz, and I'm hoping uh, you're going to be involved in that. And given Mm. that you are currently working at the Coaching Psychology Unit, University of Sydney, is there any current research going on on mindfulness within a coaching or an evidence-based coaching context that you're aware of? The research I'm aware of is my own, and that is on the development of wisdom with a particular focus 
in the boardroom at the moment. So you can consider mm. a wise decision to be a performance in the corporate world. Yep. And wisdom is one part of second generation mindfulness. So that's one part of my work. I'm developing a assessment tool and interventions for that. I'm also looking at team resilience and team performance with a study on a sailing crew that have done the city to Hobart. Wow. So we've taught them a number of second generation mindfulness skills and watch the effect it has on teams. And I'm looking to introduce mindfulness into higher education for academic success, linking mindfulness to Indigenous studies as well, which I think we can actually learn once we under- change our language or you know learn a new language, we can learn a lot of mindfulness from Indigenous cultures. Wow, some really important topics there, Liz, and very timely in a number of those areas. And just coming back to systemic awareness, which, as we said, you spoke more or wrote more broadly around in uh, the chapter, is there anything else you want to talk or explain around systemic awareness from your perspective? Yeah, I think that the future of our planet requires us to step up with regards to understanding the impact of our actions mm. on others, the planet, the animals, etc. So the idea of developing a personal mindfulness practice and then expanding that to increase our capacity to maintain a broad perspective is an incredibly positive approach to life Mm. and a deeply needed approach in leadership because of the high impact that the decisions make. Mm. Sounds like it fits nicely with um, adult development theory or constructivist developmental theory. Would that be right as well? Absolutely. The thing about mindfulness is there's difference of ways that it impacts. So, it works at three levels, really. It can work individually at a physiological level where we're rebalancing the nervous system, we're getting out of the fight and flight response. Then it can work at the psychological level where we're sort of talking about how mindfulness, second-generation mindfulness can really map onto coaching psychology and positive psychology. It's helping us explore our emotions and our thoughts and, and deal with those in a positive way. And then there's also this area where it can work on which is like a substantial purpose in life, a spiritual purpose in life, when we begin to become aware of the profound interconnectedness that exists in the world and the crucial value of compassion. This is the really powerful potential for mindfulness in changing our world. Wow, there's so much that we could uh, explore there. But what about your own greatest learning so far on the topic, Liz? Have you been on this journey for quite a while? I've been on this journey for a long time. I've been practicing for 30 years, teaching for 20 years and researching for 10 years. Yeah, it's a big part of my life. I guess my greatest learning is when life is challenging, as it is for all of us at times, for me, first-generation mindfulness is just not enough. Right. And the more complex the challenges we face, which is often something that happens as we get older, the more value is delivered by second-generation processes, systemic awareness. Mm. And so you have your own personal practice? I do. I have a practice. It varies. You know, I used to have a very regimented practice. I started with TM in my early 20s and then went to Harvard and studied with Herbert Benson. So then I spent a lot of time practicing the relaxation response and mindfulness. But now I'm a Buddhist and I go to the temple once a week 
generally once Sunday a month and my practices are now very much second generation. Wow, Liz. I, I wouldn't mind just asking you, given I, I didn't realise that you had done work with Herbert Benson. I just interviewed Dr. Sarah Edelman recently, leading clinical psych, and she was uh, commenting, which I'd also been thinking about myself recently, how people haven't, particularly through COVID, hadn't been talking much about progressive muscle relaxation and that I think maybe the popularity of mindfulness has sort of overtaken or overthrown PMR. What's your thoughts, again, as to how they interact or how you see the benefits yeah Uh, so the technique that I really love is not so much PMR but the relaxation response which is his it's referring to the physiological response of the body when we elicit any form of meditation really but it's also a particular technique where it's very simple and I love it because it cuts through to the core elements of pretty much every meditation technique which is a mental focus device and this sort of observing attitude right so I love teaching that because it allows people to adapt that technique to their own life in their own way and we know in coaching it's all about context if we want sustained behavioral change for someone who's got a busy corporate life we need to make it fit you know perfectly for their life yes and I do think that mindfulness is a is a welcome revolution but it is important to understand that there's a whole curriculum of contemplative techniques and we can use Mm. them like medicine I think and I hope that the next one will be something like the meta meditation, which is translated easily into friendliness. And you know, I know I have lots of discussions with Felicia about friendliness versus <laughs> compassion and all these lovely debates. But the fact is there's a brilliant world of contemplative medicine that can help us all navigate life. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, Liz. And any uh, perhaps a story or a case study that sort of highlights the impact or power of mindfulness, and that might be first or second gen, sounds like it might be more up your alley. I was really taken by the feedback of my sailing crew after we finished the Hobart in 2019. So they were trained in mindfulness for three months beforehand. And when we started the program, uh, the, the crew were brave enough. So we, we conducted this in a group because I'm working on how to develop your mindful groups. And the crew were brave enough to tell the navigator that they thought that they weren't sailing at their best because of his behaviour. Wow. And he he was just wonderful. And we spent, you know, three months developing second generation style mindfulness programs. We, we actually used the potential project program for that. It's a very yes. systemized program. And yep. um Therefore, it's quite, it's really helpful to use in research and it's a great program. Absolutely. So they sailed at the end of the Hobart. They won their division. They said that they felt that they sailed as best as they possibly could have and that they delivered this beautiful metaphor and it was when they changed the music, we changed the dance and the metaphor is the weather and it was describing the fact that everybody felt like they were in sync Right. That's my mindfulness story, I guess, because if we could feel attuned enough to each other in the groups that we work with and the people that we spend time with, then there's just so much joy and effectiveness available to us. Wow. And do you think it is a precursor to synchrony, um, I guess, behavioural? Yeah. Yeah. I just read a 
some interesting papers around positivity resonance this week and shared positive affect and this, you know, the components of that. And I hadn't really thought about the mindfulness component of that. But yeah, it sounds like it's intimately connected. It is. So I think, you know, we, we can understand with our own experience and also from research the value of creating positive emotional spaces you know in performance we have this idea that everyone's got their unique sort of emotional pattern that works for them when they're performing the question becomes what do you do to change the situation when it's not as you wish when you're not emotionally harmonious Mm. and the answer to that is this array of contemplative techniques that allow us to take more control over our emotion, they allow us to notice what's pleasant or unpleasant, change our attitude, allow us to proactively develop friendliness. The reason I really like the friendliness meditation, I'm calling it friendliness because people often don't like the word loving kindness or meta. Yeah, I love that too, friendliness, yeah. Friendliness, yeah. So we are deliberately cultivating an attitude of friendliness to ourselves, others, and someone we find difficult in our life. And the power of that meditation is extraordinarily because if you do it and you watch what happens to a relationship that you're finding difficult, (laughs) it is profound. Absolutely. We often use the VIA character strengths assessment in the workshops that I do. We do some strength spotting. And again, I haven't really made that link between mindfulness, but being able to look at people through the lens of strengths and perhaps the lens becomes, you know, heightened with a mindfulness type approach and being able to to look at them, noticing their, their strengths rather than the things that irritate them yes. as well can be really powerful. Oh, so good. So powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but those those linkages, they're everywhere there. And I mean, as you know, Felicia often refers to mindfulness as being the foundation of, of flourishing. And I guess that's sort of my final question. Do you think, and I'm really not sure myself here, but glad to have your thoughts, that the first gen techniques of that individual psychological mindfulness needs to precede the second gen? Or do you think they can happen simultaneously? Oh, I think they can happen simultaneously. In the words of um, Joseph Goldstein, any door will do. Any door will do. Any door will do. And uh, my model explains a number of key doors. But the four foundations of mindfulness is a traditional teaching from the sutras. And it describes mindfulness. I'm sure you know this. And mindfulness of, you know, body, mind and feelings. What is often not discussed in the first generation is mindfulness of dharma, which we can consider to be patterns of being, patterns of experience. And so we can come in from any of the senses, there's really six senses, or we can come in from this idea of observing the patterns of experience, which means we can come in from Mm. awareness, right? systemic awareness and spiritual awareness as well. Yeah. Right. Fantastic. Well, there's so much more that we could learn from you, Liz. And uh, I'm going to make sure those resources that you've noted are on our Facebook page. And just finally, is if there were, you don't have a book in the making yourself, do you, or one already in existence that we don't know about? Oh, I have a, I have a very inexpensive ebook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Called Buddha in Pinstripes. I think it's about $3 deliberately. <laughs> I don't know if you love it as a general person, not sure, but I'm trying to write paper that speak more to the general population rather than a specific, you know, academic, academic. population. Yeah. Um, and my next one coming out, I'm hoping, will be on collective wisdom. 
Wow. Well, I'd love to see a book for the public. I know for me personally, it took post 20, you know, peer-reviewed chapters and articles before I finally got a book out for the public. So, um, okay. but I would love to see a, a book come from you, Liz, for the public. Any other books that you would highly recommend for anyone interested in first or second gen mindfulness approaches? Yeah, I think to go to Joseph Goldstein's Mindfulness and Alan Wallace's The Attention Revolution, you'll get some beautiful teachings. Oh, fantastic. There's also a couple of free books for really second-generation mindful. If you're interested in going to the sort of the Buddhist history or there's something called The Eight Steps to Happiness from Gelsa Kiatso. I'll send you how to spell that. And I think How to Transform Your Life is also available as a free ebook. They're very beautiful books, but they're very, you know, traditional Buddhist books. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, Liz, for sharing your your own wisdom with us today. It's very much appreciated. And I'm personally looking forward to some of your academic publications, which I think are going to be shake the academic world off a little bit, which I, I really mm, love you. to see. And best wishes for your future career, Liz, as well. Thank you, Susie. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. And if you'd like to learn more, head to our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au to purchase a copy of my first book for the public, The Positivity Prescription. You can also sign up for our e-news where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode. And remember, life's too short to languish.